Scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians 8. Now regarding your question about food that has been offered to idols, yes, we know that we all have knowledge about this issue. But while knowledge makes us feel important, it is love that strengthens the church. <clears throat> Anyone who claims to know all the answers doesn't really know very much. But the person who loves God is the one whom God recognizes. So what about eating meat that has been offered to idols? Well, we all know that an idol is not really a god and that there is only one god. There may be so-called gods both in heaven and on earth, and some people actually worship many gods and many lords. But we know that there is only one God, the Father, who created everything, and we live for him. And there is only one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom God made everything and through whom we have been given life. However, not all believers know this. Some are accustomed to thinking of idols as being real. So when they eat food that has been offered to idols, they think of it as the worship of real gods, and their weak consciences are violated. It is true that we can't win God's approval by what we eat. We don't lose anything if we don't eat it, and we don't gain anything if we do. But you must be careful so that your freedom does not cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble. For if others see you with your superior knowledge, eating in the temple of an idol, won't they be encouraged to violate their conscience by eating food that has been offered to an idol? So because of your superior knowledge, a weak believer for whom Christ died will be destroyed. And when your sin against other believers by encouraging them to do something they believe is wrong, you are sinning against Christ. So if what I eat causes another believer to sin, I will never eat meat again as long as I live, for I don't want to cause another believer to stumble. This is the word of the Lord. You know, I know Hudson is, um, you know, a part of you, and you love him and his family, and um, you know he's at Joe Gibbs Racing, but you might not know he's my boss, um, that he, he oversees the, the ministry. He does a great job there, and um, I'm thankful to be one of your missionaries. I wanted to give you just a quick uh, prayer request and a little knowledge about what's going on. I started a new small group there um, recently. And I've got a whole mixture of folks. I've got one fellow that grew up and went to Charlotte Christian, and um, he he knows Christ. In this, he's in a small group, but he openly admitted to me he's never really interacted with other people. He's never really been inviting anybody. He's never really shared his faith before. He's never so he wanted to kind of be a part of this group. Also, a part of the group is is a fellow that uh, openly said the very first time we met. He said, um, I used to go to church when I was a kid, and some things happened, and um, then my mom died, then I lost a job, and I kind of gave up on God. And this is my attempt right now to see if God's given up on me. Um, so, you know, we're dealing with real live people with real live issues, so I want you to pr continue to pray for Hudson and to pray for me, and I would appreciate that. Um, before we go to this portion of Scripture, let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would bring uh, clarity 
but also you would touch our hearts that we would not be the same as a result of being involved with this passage of Scripture and that you would uh, use it for the benefit of not just us individually, but for this church. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I've been kind of on retainer with you uh, during this last season, as, as one of the guys said, um, I've tried to preach on a number of um, encounters with Jesus uh, where people came in contact with Jesus. And then I also have spoken a few times on um, spiritual maturity. So the encounters with Jesus obviously were very encouraging. They're miracle stories. But the, um, the passages about spiritual maturity were designed particularly for Christians and how to respond. This is one of those sermons. It's designed for believers. So if you're not a believer, I, I encourage you to, to listen because you're going to hear some because we're going to talk about new Christians and new believers, and hopefully you are one of those soon. Um, on one of those sermons I preached, you might remember, don't uh, rename your sins mistakes because then all you are, are are a mistaker, and a mistaker doesn't need a Savior. Only a sinner can need a Savior. And sometimes when we, you know, rationalize away our sins, we, rec- we are basically pushing Jesus away. And then I preached on how to grow uh, spiritually and looked at 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. These were some of the last words of Peter, and that talked about how to grow spiritually and also how to end well as a believer. Our passage today is somewhat unfamiliar to us. On the surface, it looks a little different, a little difficult. In fact, when I sent on Monday, um, Angela sends me an email and says, what are you preaching on? What's your text? What's your passage? So I sent it to her. I sent it to her, and I sent it to Hudson because he does some of the order of worship, and I sent it to Ben so he can have an idea of how to pick music. And Ben sends me an email. Are you sure it's not 2 Corinthians chapter 8? What in the world? You know, in my mind, I was thinking, he's going, what in the world are you going to preach on from 1 Corinthians chapter 8? That couldn't be there. But I believe God has some important truths for us. And at first glance, when you heard this read, you might think this is a Christian argument for uh, Christian vegetarianism. And because Paul says in verse 13, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that will not cause them to fall. Well, what in the world is this chapter all about? Well, we gotta, I'm going to go back a little bit, way back. Do you remember Cain and Abel? Um, Cain said in an arrogant way to God, um, am I my brother's keeper? Uh, he, of course, was reflecting the me-ism that's continued ever since then. He's concerned about himself and what pleased him, what gratified him, uh, his rights, his provisions. He wasn't concerned about his brother at all. He didn't, he wasn't, um, he basically said, I could care about anyone else. I, I don't care about anybody else except me. I'm what I'm concerned about. Do you remember the goals in uh, Finding Nemo? When they go, mine, mine, mine. You know, <laughs> when they were going to go catch the little Nemo on the, on the dock, they go, mine, mine, mine. And well, that's the attitude that's talked about in this chapter. The issue before us is an old issue. It's not an issue that we're likely to face today. If you go to Harris Teeter or uh, Food Line or Piggly Wiggly, there's not one around here, but I used to go to one. Um, you're not 
likely to hear someone ask the question of the butcher, has this piece of meat been offered to an idol? It just doesn't happen. We get, um, but that's the principle that's being involved here that we will face every day. And particularly, and I just want to tell you, I, you know, you're going to have a new pastor soon, right? And I anticipate that this church is going to grow. And there are going to be a lot of new people here, new believers here. And remember this passage when you get a a flood of new believers and you go, well, they ought to be right where we all are. Well, that's not going to be the case. They're going to have all sorts of issues. You need to love them. And this passage talks about loving them. Um, Paul is concerned about a spirit and an attitude, a selfishness, a carelessness about other other people, particularly Christians in the church they go to. And Paul is telling them here that you tend to trample on their consciences a great deal of the time. Um, They had written Paul and asked about this question, and they didn't really like Paul's answer. And so now in 1 Corinthians, um, he's going into greater depth. Um, Some of the people thought the issue was no big deal. Paul didn't, he thought it was a big deal. Uh, the, the Corinthians were a very gifted church and also a self-centered bunch. They, um, so Paul's concerned about their attitude, and he felt like in some ways they were poisoning the fellowship of God amongst the church. Um, they were good at doing things on their own, on behaving in such a way that it didn't matter what else anybody thought. It was an individualism at its worst. They were forgetting and ignoring that there were other members in the body of Christ, the church. The church, the people, did not factor in, and this is a good question for you. When you make decisions, do you consider the church? I'll never forget, side, not in my notes. We had a, a, an event at the church uh, that I was pastoring, and it was kind of designed for young people uh, and young adults. And so they were all there, and it was a good crowd. And then there were like four or five gray-haired people like me now, right? And I went up to them and thanked them for coming, and I said, what, what motivated you to be here? And they had a very biblical response. They said, we're a part of the church. And if a part of the church is here, and they've come together, why shouldn't we be here and encourage them and be with them? They made decisions not based upon their own schedule and what was easy, but was made decisions based on the church and caring for the church. So what's the issue here? Um, well, in talking with other pastors over the years, believe it or not, most pastoral problems boil down to selfishness in the church. Um, this passage is the key to spiritual maturity, and it's very important. Churches have split over Uh, just a few people being selfish, and it causes a big uproar. So I want to protect the church. I want to protect this church because I love it. So the issue is very simple. In every ancient town of that day, on every main street, side street, back street, there tended to be temples of one God or another. You couldn't get away from them. And um, what you might not know, that these heathen temples they were the restaurants, they were the Denny's, they were the conference rooms, they were of the ancient world. Um, these were the places where civic functions were held. 
if the mayor wanted to have his civic function, he would go and hire out a portion of the temple. Because main thing is that's where the food was and you could eat it there. And it was the large enough room to do it. Uh, if you had a family occasion and your house wasn't big enough, you big enough, you rented a temple. If you had a wedding anniversary, you would rent the temple. New Year's Eve party, you would rent the temple. It sounds great, doesn't it? That, that would be in the city and you'd be able to have that. But that's where the, the rub comes. When we go to Publix or Trader Joe's and we get meat in white sanitized um, plastic trays or we go to the butcher and say cut this much off and they wrap it up for us. Uh, in the ancient world, it wasn't like that. You, would have, you, they, you needed to know when they were butchering and you would go there as soon as possible to cut down on the amount of flies that had touched your meat, right? Uh, but you would go there, and what you, need, you knew was earlier, maybe an hour earlier, that meat was slaughtered and offered to a, a false god, an idol. And part of it was burnt up, and the other part, it was sort of like the temples used it, kind of like the Salvation Army does today, um, or the thrift stores, they get stuff for free and then they turn around and sell it, right? So they would get the food for free, uh, offer some of it to the idol, and then they would take the rest and sell it at a profit, and they would go like that. Um, but the, So the mumbo-jumbo of whatever happened in the temple didn't really matter to the meat. But, um, and the problem and the question is, is purchasing that meat and eating that meat, are you condoning the mumbo-jumbo that happened over that meat? Did you, are you condoning what was going on? Are you somehow saying, that's okay as long as I can have the meat? So then the question boils down, should Christians be present at functions in temples where the food's been offered to idols? Suppose a new Christian, now just imagine, had a conscience about not eating meat offered to idols because for 40 years they'd been in that temple and been a part of worshiping and bringing the meat and they had been they knew about this idol they had worshiped it they'd sung to it they were fearful of it they'd even prayed to it at some point and now they've come to faith but there's something about they don't want to go back there and they want to be completely divided from that sort of worship because now they are worshiping Jesus. Uh, can you imagine the trouble and the offense that would be on them that when they smelled the smells of the temple and they they went in and they heard that and they did this. Sometimes we have that when people come from Catholicism to Protestantism because they have certain things they didn't realize were important and, and inculcated into their soul. Suppose your um, grandparents were having their 50th wedding anniversary and they rented out the temple you grew up going to and you really don't want to go, but think about the family mess if you didn't show up at the 50th wedding anniversary. And so you go or you don't go. What do you do? Or could you imagine if you belonged to the leather industry and they were having a trade union um, meeting at the temple and that's where the food was and the question was can I eat that meat can I eat a catered meal and the argument from the Corinthians were this they had two points and you will like this because it's very theological 
they said, Paul, you know that Apollo, Zeus don't exist. There's only one God, our Father in heaven, through Jesus Christ, we've come to know and worship him, the Trinitarian God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's only one God. And all these others are idols. In the morning, they're part of the tree. In the afternoon, half of it's firewood, and half of the other half is an idol. It's nothing. It's just a tree. Um, it's stupid. Idols are nothing. There's no such thing as another God. They're not actually worshiping other gods. They're not actually devoting that meat to a true God. There are no other gods. There's just one. Sounds plausible, doesn't it? That's what their argument was. It's no big deal. We who know more just declare it's no big deal. And then secondly, they said, God doesn't mind what we eat. And they would go, they said, now you might be a vegetarian, and that's fine if you're a vegetarian here today. But you can't, don't convince me that I can't have bacon. The Bible says something different. Uh, in Acts chapter 10, there was a, God basically declared all the foods can be eaten. That there's no, um, basically the, the laws of the Old Testament were fulfilled in Christ. So it's no big deal. But if you're a converted Jew and you come to Christ, it's a deal. It's a big deal. Um, so those are powerful arguments. Number one, that God, those little God, little G gods don't exist. Secondly, you're no more holy if you eat nuts and tofu as opposed to chicken and brisket. The Corinthians then concluded that there was no harm in going to the temple and eating the food that had been offered to these heathen gods. It doesn't mean anything to us. And so individuals and the leaders of that church says, if basically we're saying those of you that have weak consciences, just deal with it. Grow up. So Paul now enters into this argument, eat or don't eat. And Paul starts off by agreeing with them, which is a good thing to do when there's tension to go, let me agree with this part of what you're saying. He says, you're right. Your theology is right. Verse 4 and six through 6 says, an idol is nothing. There's no God but one. And then he agrees in verse 8, food will not condemn us to God. We are neither the worse, or if we do not eat it, nor better if we do eat it. If you want to eat meat, go ahead. But don't say you're more holy for being able to eat meat, or less holy that you, or more holy that you don't eat meat. Your philosophy is fine, your doctrine is sound, it's correct, so what's the problem? The problem is found in verse 7. Not everyone in the church knows this, and that's the problem. Look at verse 7, but not everyone possesses this knowledge. Now, what does that mean? It means that intellectually, this new believer knows in their heart the theology. Not everyone, though, knows it with their emotions or in their feelings or in their consciences. They are, there are believers in your church and in their minds, they know there's only one God, Paul is saying, but intellectually, they know that Apollo and Aphrodite and Zeus don't exist. They know that in their intellect, but in their heads, in their heads, but they are more than just intellect. These Corinthian churches, some of them, what we would call the weak ones, they knew it in their heads, and if you ask them the right catechism question, they give you the right catechism answer. But you pop them into Apollo's temple with all the incense and the music and the atmosphere, and oh, something comes over their hearts. 
when you take these people, these weaker believers, weaker Christians, Paul is saying, when you take them into the temple and they're eating whatever meat it is, you know in your head it's okay, but in your heart you say, this was offered to the idol that I used to worship. I'm back right where I began. And it can cause people to doubt. And Paul is saying the weaker brother might know one thing in his head, but in his heart there's another. His conscience is weak. His, his conscience can be destroyed. Paul says, look at, at what he says at the end of verse 7. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat, sacrificial food they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god and since their conscience is weak it is defiled that's the problem having to live then with a conscience that is defiled they go about the rest of the week going i did something wrong now all of us have consciences that need to be educated by the scripture by the word of god I kind of liken it to a sundial. Do you know what a sundial is? You might see one in a garden every once in a while. And in this modern world, we don't use them very much anymore. But a sundial, when, when the sun's shining, you can kind of tell what time it is. I guess you have to adjust it for daylight savings time and move it a little bit. But if you take that sundial and, and go at night on a perfectly moonlit night, and you look at what the moonlight says to the sundown you try to read what time it is it's wrong you know why it's not a moon dial it's a sundial but if you in liking this if you've grown up all your life looking at it from the moon's perspective rather than from the sun's perspective you can be messed up the shorter catechism has it this way the word of god is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. Our consciences need to be educated, absolutely. A new believer needs to grow, but we need to be gracious with them in the process. Um, some of you might be, and some of the Corinthians said, well, Christians should be influenced by the path, past. Well, Paul's saying, that's silly. They are influenced by their past, and so are you. Look at verse 11. So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. You can do them great spiritual harm by pushing on them a truth they're not ready for yet. And Paul says, you can't think like that. That's selfishness. That's meism. You've got to think about others. You've got to think about the Christians whose consciences that are weaker than yours. Yes, they need to be trained. Yes, they need to be guided in the principles of Scripture, but they are weak. They're frail. Let me give you another illustration. I'll never forget the first time I held like a brand-new baby. My, my um, sister-in-law brought this little boy, and we were all proud. It was the first grandchild, right? And he, she goes, here, hold him. And I, at that point, I never held a baby. I've held bunches since, but I've I, I was so scared. And I go, don't go far. <laughs> and so I hold the baby. They say, you know, hold the head up, you know, the whole deal. And I'm, I'm grabbing it. She's just right there. I think my brother was right over here making sure I didn't fall it. How to elevate the head and hold it. The last thing I ever wanted to do was drop that baby, Right? I, I did not want to hurt that baby. I, I was very careful. My big old hands were holding that little thing, 
And I, I'll never forget how light it was. And his, his name was BJ. And, and I looked at him, and I was amazed. I couldn't imagine how God could make those little bitty fingers. They, I always, always look at little baby fingers. They're just, they're just amazing, you know. And and last thing I would ever want to do is hurt that little baby. Well, we need to have that kind of care for a new believer. Now, when that little baby, when VJ got eight years old, I threw him around like a sack of potatoes. I'd go over to their house and we'd wrestle on the floor for about an hour. And his mom, who you know gave me the baby to hold the first time, was all really happy because BJ would sleep when she put him down. She wanted me to wear him out. That was great. We, we would jump. They would jump on my back. I'd flip them off. They'd land on the ground, bounce off. He had another brother. By that time, we would just go wrestle for a while, and then they'd be all sweaty. I'd be all sweaty, and Mama would say, okay, it's time to go to bed, and they were ready. They were worn out. So you treat them differently at different ages. Verse 9 says, be careful, however, that the exercise of your right does not become a stumbling block to the weak. You've got your liberty to go to those temples and eat, but you gotta be careful that you don't hurt people in the church as a result of it. So where's the application? Here Paul is talking to strong believers and he's also talking to weak believers. He's saying this is true what they're saying to you. They've not been applying it well, but it is true. You do need to grow up at the same time we want you to know Christ is basically saying, I care for weak believers. And if you're in the church, you should care for weak believers too that have not known the Lord long time. Well, today, could anything like this ever happen? Uh, do you send your kids to public schools? There'll be some that'll say, you should not send your kids to public schools. Some people say you should send them to Christian schools. Some people say, don't send them to Christian schools. You need to homeschool. Everybody has all sorts of different opinions. Some people kind of liken it to, well, if you're a real Christian, you'll do what I do. Well, that's immature. If you're in the Middle East and you go there today, um, there might be some believers there, ladies, that would be offended by how much skin you show or don't show. Right? So if you go there, you would want to be sensitive to them. Even though you can, might point to them, they need to grow. That's, their cult, that's what they've grown up in, and so we need to accommodate and care for them. We're not, trying to, we're not throwing away Scripture. We're not saying this is not true. What we're saying is we love you. Um, alcohol is an issue. Not so much today as it used to be when I first started ministry. Um, Christians in the New Testament drank alcohol. Jesus drank alcohol. Jesus turned um, water into 180 gallons of wine, the best wine, the Scripture says. The book of Psalms says it's a blessing. Is there anything that forbids a Christian from consuming alcohol? And in one sense, the answer is no. But in the other sense, unless it's going to offend someone, let me tell you, um, well, People have a lot to say about alcohol, and I don't want the end result of this sermon is you go back and have a talk about alcohol. That's not the goal, but it's, it's an illustration of what we're dealing with in, in our culture and the culture you, your parents probably grew up in. There are thousands of lives that are ruined by alcohol every year. 
there are marriages that split up because of alcohol. I have a niece that decided not to have children because her mother was such a heavy drinker. She did, he, she did not want her mother ever around a little baby. The principle is thoughtful Christians who care for fellow believers in the church ought to be concerned for the weaker brother. Um, and sometimes it, the weaker brother might be uh, someone who grew up in a uh, grape juice only whatever denomination church. Um, let me give you a story. This is from 20 years ago. Uh, the new couple came to our church. They were already churched, and, and they, they came to, moved to the area, came to our church, and they were amazed how much grace was preached and how much they, they not, they'd always gone to a church that just simply had the rules. You know, they had the list. They, were, they were, came from what's called a fundamentalist church. They took the fun and the mental out and left you with the list, a fundamentalist. And so you knew what to do, how to do, how to dress, where to sit, what kind of pews to have, what kind of carpet needed to be, what size, what, what, how the church was built, if it was white or not, if the roof was green or not, if the, the cemetery was in the back or in the front, never in the front, always in the back. You know, they had all sorts of rules about different things. Well, they come to this church, and all of a sudden they start experiencing the Bible being taught and emphasizing grace. One of the, this couple was invited by one of the elders to go to the Donald Ross Grill on, at Pinehurst Number 2. Really nice place, good food. And so they go there, and, and the two couples, so four of them, and they, and they sit down, and they get ready to order the food, and the, and the elder asked the couple, would y'all like wine with your food? And all of a sudden, he knew. Their eyes went, what? You're an elder in the church, and you drink wine? So he graciously, you know, said, okay, no problem. Well, they didn't order wine for themselves. They had the food, and then the elder paid for the food. They had a, had a meal, talked about other things. Well, a couple of days after that, the wife calls me and says, I, you need to come over here. We need to talk. So we go, I go over to their house. And <laughs> the conversation started this way. How many people in the church drink alcohol? I said, what happened? And they, she told me the story. I said, and and um, I asked some qualifying questions. I said, well, did they drink wine in front of you? No, no, they didn't. Um, so... She, um, she told me, I said, she said, I don't think, can y'all just outlaw that in your church? And we'd be, we would be better with that. Just tell everybody they cannot drink alcohol ever, never, ever. I said, that would be going over and above what the Bible teaches, and we don't do that. We don't try to, we try very hard not to, to, to teach anything more or less than what the Scripture teaches. And the Scripture says, don't ever be drunk. And I went through a number of different passages. And she said, it, what really bothers me is I have a 12-year-old son. It's our only son. And I just don't want him to know that there are godly people who drink alcohol because I'm afraid of what he'll do with that. And so I, I read to her from Romans 14. And let me just read um, portions of that to you, and it's very similar to our passage. 
Accept other believers who are weak in faith and don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. For instance, one person believes it's all right to eat anything, but another believer with a sensitive conscience will only eat vegetables. Those who feel free to eat anything must not look down on those who don't. And those who don't eat certain foods must not condemn those who do, for God has accepted them. Who are you to condemn someone else's servants? Their own master will judge whether they stand or fall. And with the Lord's help, they will stand and receive approval. Verse 20, he kind of, he goes on talking more about that, and then he kind of sums up that chapter with this. Don't tear apart the work of God over what you eat. Remember, all foods are acceptable, but it is wrong to eat something if it makes another person stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else if it might cause another person to stumble. You may believe there's nothing wrong with what you are doing, but keep, in, keep it between yourself and God. Blessed are those who don't feel guilty for doing something they've decided is right. But if you have doubts about whether, you, whether or not you should eat something, if you are, you are sinning if you go ahead and do it, for you're not following your convictions. If you do anything you believe is not right, you are sinning. So I went to her and I said, do you realize the context? They're talking about food at this section. And then he mentions food and wine. And he's saying, do you hear what it's saying? She goes, I've never heard that ever in my whole life. And she went to get her Bible and, and opened it up herself to make sure it was in her Bible. She said, I've never heard that before. And then I went to John chapter 2 when he, Jesus turned the water to wine. And I, I, I read it. I said, why do you think they said, um, the, the maitre d' kind of guy said, why have you brought the best wine for last? Because most people bring the, the, you know, the box wine at the end. I said, why do you think that's the case? She said, I don't know. And the husband spoke up and said, because people can tell, can't tell it's not the best wine at the end because they're a little tipsy. I get, exactly. And she goes, Jesus made real wine. I was taught it was grape juice. I said, then the context would make no sense. And at that point, the husband made a big mistake. He said, I've always thought they'd be the case. And now the wife is on an island by herself, right? She said, I, I just don't know what to do with my 12-year-old son if all this is right. And I looked at her and said, do you let your son drive the car? She goes, of course not. He's only 12 years old. I said, why not? Because it's not good for him. And I said, exactly. When he's ready, what are you going to do? I'm going to make sure he gets, you know, education on how to do it and how to do it because it's dangerous. And, you know, you're going to make sure he gets a license. You're going to do all that. Make sure he does it safely. You're going to talk to him about it. You're going to try to teach him wisdom between now and then so that when he has a three-ton three vehicle that he doesn't kill somebody, right? He says, yes. He says, that's why I don't let my kids drink alcohol when they're 12 years old. There's not any difference there. And then I went back to the, their meal at Donald Ross Grill, and I said, did the elder drink wine in front of you? He goes, no. Did they ask if you wanted some, you said, and you said no, and they honored that? 
Do you know at that point they were applying scripture to that, that meal? They were loving you. They were caring for you not to hurt you. Do you but you, you, somehow you didn't see the love that they had for you. You only were fixated that they would be willing to drink wine and that they were an elder. I've often wondered if that 12-year-old who's now probably, you know, 32, if he has a beer every once in a while. I don't know. But look at verse 11 and 12, and I'll conclude with this. Paul brings it down, right down to the cross, because that's the issue. So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. The weaker brother and sisters uh, with their scruples are brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's the issue, that you can truly hurt someone. You can drop them as they were a baby on the ground and hurt them because their consciences are weak as you prepare for your new pastor and as you prepare for many, many new families, new singles to come to this church. Remember to love them. If you don't, you sin against Christ. Elevate the view of this church in your mind. It is really important how you show your selfishness and how you don't. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the scripture that says, don't tear apart the work of God over what you eat. And Father, um, help us go down even deeper. Help us to be willing to give up what we think is our rights because we care for other people. And Father, thank you that you have this tender heart for us. I'll never forget first coming to know you and how tender you were with me and how you loved me and how people in the church came alongside me and encouraged me. And Father, I'm so thankful for that church way back then. And Father, I pray that we would not neglect or um, think less of the importance of North Cross Church in the people that come and the next generation, their children and the next children. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.